the sutta we have studied has taken us all the way from beginning to end of practice what needs to be done and so at this point I would like to add something to it which is the result of practice it wasn't mentioned in the sutta it's mentioned in many others and I feel that it's appropriate to also hear about the final result that comes from following all these guidelines which go from our moral conduct to concentration to insight wisdom. Now, the insight which eventually arises from this practice is obviously that we look at our self-illusion doubtfully and then recognize it for what it is. Because we have seen in the Sutta that obviously we can't be three or five or six or maybe a hundred different selves. One is there and it disappears and then a new one arises and then that disappears. We have one that's concerned with the body and at that time that's all we are concerned with. And we have one that's concerned with our mental formations, our minds, and then that disappears if our consciousness latches on to something else. So neither one of those is stable and neither one of those is reliable. It's always moving about. Neither the past nor the present nor the future self can be considered to be anything that's solid because that too disappears. The self we had a second ago is gone. Now we've got a new one. And the mental formation which is arising latches on to that which is being said. So the previous one has disappeared. And then on top of that, we can have a look at all the previous selves in the past, whether they are anywhere to be found. Particularly if we can think of something that we did and wouldn't do again. The self then did it. The self now wouldn't do it. Funny self. Always different. Never can one get a real hold of it or a grasp on it. It's always sort of moving before one can actually really get a tight hold on it. We can compare it to a meandering brook. It keeps on moving. Now, if we want to get a hold of it, and we put our hand into the water and like try to grab it, we can't get anything of that brook. Nothing will stay in our hand. It just moves on. If it didn't move on, it wouldn't be a brook anymore. 
it would be a stagnant pool. And even if we put our hand in a stagnant pool, we can't get hold of that either. So no matter how we look at the self, in which direction from wherever we take the uh, standpoint, we can't possibly grab it and hold it. So having come to that point in our practice, which may take quite a lot of different approaches, some people approach approach that through dukkha. They get so sick and tired of their own dukkha that they're able to let go of everything that's experiencing dukkha. Some people go through it, go through anicca, impermanence, which I've just mentioned. And others go through the analysis of that which they consider self and recognize that that analysis has at its base an unknown and can therefore never come out as an equation. If we base an equation on an unknown, we can't really have a solid result. Some people use all three. Those are the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, qualitness. Either one of them will take us to the goal. We can combine them, we can use one, we can use them alternatively, whichever way the mind directs itself. On the path of practice, it's very important and essential to keep that in mind, not to lose it when one gets out into the world where everything is made to look as if it was was permanent. Everything is made to look as if it really will bring satisfaction. Everything is made to look as if there's really somebody there. So the world out there has a standpoint which is not conducive to practice, not at all. So one has to really make a concerted effort to remember those three characteristics. Keep them in mind and check them out against all that one touches with one's senses, including one's thinking. If we forget it, we're forgetting the path. The spiritual path is not just sitting down and meditating. Meditating is essential for the path. We can't do it without it. It's just too difficult to do it. The mind just won't go in that direction. But even outside of meditation, we should never forget what we're actually trying to do. Are we trying to get out 
of Dukkha. And are we actually <clears throat> putting our effort in the right spot? Are we trying to get out of Dukkha by seeing the truth? Or are we trying to get out of Dukkha by getting more Sukha? Which way are we inclined? If we want to see the truth, we've got to look for it as often and as much as we can. There's a, a veil or fog or even a brick wall surrounding the mind of the ordinary worldling. A worldling, a putujana, is a person, any person, who has not had path and fruit. There's a very strong division made at that point. If one has had path and fruit, one becomes an Aryan, a noble one. Because one's whole inner being changes. Now what happens when we speak about path and fruit? Having understood all this that I've just referred to and understood it from the ground up as a really gut feeling and not just as a possibility without any doubt and there's not the slightest possibility of doubting that understanding being totally sure that all that we're thinking about this self is nothing but an idea an idea which goes along with everybody else's idea but then we can look at everybody else and maybe find out, are these people really happy and contented? Or are their ideas the cause for their difficulties? When we have no longer any doubt that we have just got the wrong idea in mind and are totally willing to give it up, then comes the moment when we can try to do that. Giving this idea up is not as easily done as it is said, but at least one can explain it. After any of the jhanas is the right moment. I would say that first jhana is not particularly suitable, although the Buddha said any of the jhanas are all right. third jhana, fourth jhana, fifth, sixth, seventh, are all very suitable. Because the mind is at ease. The mind is at rest. It is clear of the hindrances. When the hindrances are there, it's impossible to see truth. One sees hindrances. But at that time, having had the concentrated meditation, the hindrances have been laid aside for that period. And the mind is clear and translucent. And this is the reason 
why it is possible at that time to see the absolute truth because of the clarity and translucence of the mind. So after any of these, or if one wishes, one can do it after concentrated meditation, but if the concentration isn't long enough and steady enough, the hindrances haven't been laid aside. So it's got to be steady. One can once more review how one thinks about this self. All the understanding that one has gained, that this is nothing but an illusion. And then ascertain whether one is willing to give one's selfhood up. Is one willing to give up this conglomeration of feeling and knowing and inner certainty that this is me. Am I willing to give this up? And when the mind says, absolutely, I want to give that up because I've realized it's a cause for dukkha. It's nothing but an ever-moving flux and flow. The selfhood has no base in reality or any of those. When the mind affirms that that is what one wants to do, then one can quite voluntarily, on purpose, direct one's mind towards what we call the still point, a point of mental formation where nothing at all happens. Maybe the mind will go. If the mind is clean and clear enough, and it's got to be totally clean and totally clear, that's why no hindrances and no obscurations of any doubts. Maybe this is me trying to get something out of it. That doesn't work. If the mind is clean and clear enough, it will direct itself towards the point where there is absolutely nothing happening. There is no experiencer. And because there is no experiencer, one cannot say anything about it other than that it's a moment of nothing. And this is a moment of nothing quite different from seventh jhana, which is the base of nothingness, the base of no-thingness, totally different. In that seventh jhana, there is an experiencer who knows very exactly what's going on, namely that there's not a single solid building block in the whole of the universe and experiences that. But here, it's nothing. And it's one single mind moment. So it's not even easy to describe after it has happened. However, following it, there is immediately the fruit moment. 
The path movement is called Magga, and the fruit movement is called Pala, Magga Pala, path and fruit, which is the goal of the practice. Immediately following is the fruit movement, and it has certain characteristics which are always repeated. So if one then tells that to the teacher, it's easy for the teacher to find out whether it's really happened or whether it's more wishful thinking, or whether one is near it, and it could have happened, but it didn't. Because the fruit moment has characteristics which are always repeated. Not all of them for everyone, but certain ones always come again. The next moment is one which can be blissful, it can be joyful, it may be neither of those, But one thing is sure, it's a moment of total relief. It's like having let go of the most enormous burden that one has been carrying around with one. And the feeling of relief is so pronounced that at this point it's not unusual that tears come to one's eyes. They're not tears of sadness, they're tears of relief. So the relief is always there. There can be bliss. That bliss may come later. The fruit moment is not confined to the moment after. It always happens. Some of it happens the moment after. Otherwise one wouldn't be able to explain anything. But it's not confined to that. The bliss can come the next day when one realizes again the relief. The relief, which also is coupled with something else, which is always the case, which is common to all the experiences of path and fruit. Coupled with the certainty of knowing that there was a moment when there was nobody there, and that that moment was the truth. There wasn't a person. And that moment was the most absolute truth that one has ever experienced. This is common to all fruit moments. That knowing. And particularly with the first one. Because obviously until then one has never experienced a moment when there was nobody there. To the extent where that person was totally eliminated for one mind moment. Now you know how quick one mind moment is. The relief and the knowing, or particularly the knowing, the knowing that there was nobody there takes two mind moments. At the very most three. The relief can last. The relief, the tears, all that can last and can actually turn into bliss later on if it didn't right away. Some of that, particularly the knowing, arises immediately. And then one knows what one has practiced for. There's also 
not for everyone, but quite often, a feeling of having actually lost weight. Obviously, one hasn't lost an ounce, but it is a feeling as if the body has become much lighter. Obviously, it's the mind that has become much lighter. But the mind has great influence on our body feeling. As you know, when we are concentrated in meditation, body feeling disappears. Concentration is in the mind. Body feeling disappears. So that lightness can be there. It doesn't have to be. There's a very nice analogy in the Visuddhimagga. Visuddhimagga means, in English, path, magga, path, visuddhi, purification, path of purification. Title of a thick volume, a commentary on the Buddha's teaching, written in the 5th century by a monk called Buddha Gosa in Sri Lanka and containing every detail that one could possibly want or not want. It's that detailed that one probably finds it difficult to read. But it's very useful as a reference uh, book. You can look it up. And there's a very, there are some very good analogies in there. And this one is also a very um, apt one. It talks about a river. And this bank depicting this worldly life. And the other bank on the other side of the river depicting the experience of Nibbana. And on this side of the river, there's a huge tree. And it has a branch which is hanging over the river. And there's a rope attached to this branch. The branch depicts our usual way of thinking about ourselves, the materiality, even the uh, materiality which still exists on the spiritual path when we think I'm doing it. All that is materiality. And the rope depicts our clinging to that. It's tied on to the branch. So we're clinging. Clinging with our idea of selfhood. The rope is the selfhood. The branch is the materiality of our being. And with the momentum of practice, we grab a hold of that rope and swing across the river and if we're willing and able to let go of the selfhood at that time we let ourselves fall on the opposite bank obviously this is just an analogy a simile none of that needs to go on in the mind but it does depict something now falling down on the other side of the river on the other bank of course, we're unsteady because we've had a fall and also we are in a new place, unknown, and we have to find our feet. 
So it isn't uncommon that after the past moment there is a feeling of being jittery, a little um, the feeling of as if something momentous has happened and can't actually explain what it was, but there's a jittery feeling. It's not, um, it's not pleasant, it's not unpleasant. It's just um, a reaction which is depicted in this idea that one falls down on the other side of the river and there one has to find one's footing. Obviously one finds one's footing, there's no way that one doesn't, and then one can happily enjoy the other bank of the river. One gets used to being a different person. One looks exactly the same as before. Nobody knows the difference, except maybe one's teacher. But inside, it's quite different. And what happens is that one has let go automatically at that time of the first three of ten fetters. I always remember at that moment when I say fetters, that the Buddha called his little son Rahula, which means the fetter. So we have ten fetters described by the Buddha, five lower ones, five higher ones. And this is the moment of having lost the first three. The first and foremost one, the one which takes pride of place, and changes one's inner being is that one has changed from wrong view to right view. And right view means that one never again is going to believe that there is a person sitting inside of one. Like a man or a woman looking out through one's eyes hearing through one's ears, thinking through one's mind, wishing through one's desires, we'll never believe that again. Because there's an absolute experience that one can fall back on, which told one, this is a mistaken view, wrong view. And that right view only arises for the person that has the first um, experience when one puts one's mind to it. The inner feeling of oneself, while it has changed dramatically, has not changed to the point where one doesn't feel the me within. That comes later. But any time one puts one's mind to an inquiry, who am I, one knows without a shadow of a doubt that one is the phenomena of mind and body, and that one has arisen through craving, and that all craving is dukkha, and that the idea of me was the cause of all 
problems and that the world suffers from that. So that wrong view of self can never arise again. But the feeling, when one walks around, when one talks to people, of being a person is still there. So what is necessary for such a person that has done that first step is to resurrect right view of oneself as often as possible. Bring up that right view any time one can think of it, particularly if one is confronted with something one doesn't like. That's a time when the ego starts acting up. And if one doesn't remember at that time that this is all just viewpoint, one may fall into that trap. Because with that very first step, hate and greed have not been touched yet. So to bring up right view at any time is one support system. A person who has done this step is the first one of the noble ones and is called a stream enterer. Such a person has entered the stream towards Nibbana and it's irreversible. It says in the scriptures that the maximum one still has to deal with this world are seven lifetimes. But obviously one can do the whole trip in this lifetime. It is usual and common that a person who has become a stream enterer recognizes the difficulty very, very exactly that are confronting him or her because of the fact that hate and greed have not been touched yet and is determined to make an end of it. So the practice takes on momentum. There's a determination to go ahead with it and get it over with and maybe be young enough to still enjoy it. Someone has come to the end of it. So, the uh, moment is called stream entry, and the person the stream entry, Sotapanna. A person who has done that has uh, two other fetters that are lost. The other, another one which is of importance is skeptical doubt is gone. There's no way that one can doubt the veracity of the Buddha's teaching because one has experienced it oneself. The Buddha has said so and lo and behold, so it is. There's nobody there. I don't know whether one can imagine what it's like to feel that there's nobody there. When one's experienced it, one knows. But I don't know whether one can imagine it. The uh, beauty and the ease in the mind is far greater than any of the meditative absorptions. So skeptical doubt in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha has disappeared. There is full confidence, full devotion, full gratitude 
and as I said a determination to get on with it not to stop right there obviously the mind does need a little time because it first has to get used to this new way of thinking about things it's like this jittery feeling has to disappear first although it is said in the scriptures that when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree in what's today Bodh Gaya he went through all of the four stages in one go but that was the Buddha so for us it is a tremendous achievement to get to the first stage but as I said people who do are hardly ever contented with that and they shouldn't be because obviously their minds are able to go further so skeptical doubt is eliminated completely but also the doubt in one's own ability one knows one can do it so it gives a great deal of self-confidence self-confidence is not a feeling of superiority a feeling of superiority is usually followed by a feeling of inferiority self-confidence is a feeling of inner strength an inner strength which doesn't have to prove a thing there's nothing to prove there's nobody there and nowhere to go so that too arises and that feeling of inner strength also helps to get on with the practice the devotion to Buddha Dhamma Sangha and confidence in it the three jewels also helps the practice because one isn't going to make up one's own ideas anymore how one should practice one follows the Buddha's guidelines as one knows them one may not know them that exactly but as one knows them knows them that's how one follows them so that's the second factor that is lost first one is wrong view and the second one is skeptical doubt skeptical doubt is very damaging to one's practice if one has it and obviously everyone has it who hasn't had that first past moment it stops one from doing what needs to be done and instead one allows the mind to have convolutions of thought processes how it could be otherwise and one wastes an awful lot of mental energy and time with that in fact one can get to the point where one doesn't do anything if one has convinced oneself that it should be done otherwise and we can actually convince ourselves of a lot of things particularly if the mind isn't clean and clear so we lose that skeptical doubt completely there's nothing else to be done anymore except that as a priority doesn't mean that we have to leave our family leave our jobs or anything like that it can be done 
anywhere, at any time. And the third fetter which we lose is the belief in rites and rituals. There are strong beliefs everywhere that certain rites and rituals will have the property and the characteristic that they can actually get us out of our dukkha, purify us to the point where we can get out of dukkha. That kind of belief is totally eliminated because one has experienced oneself that it had absolutely nothing to do with rites and rituals. It was the clarity and clearness of the mind and the willingness to let go. That's why I've been using the word let go so much, because the past moment is a moment of total letting go. It doesn't mean that one cannot perform rites and rituals, but it would stand to reason that one would reduce them to a minimum, because one wouldn't want to use too much time and energy on them, rather get on with the work. There are certain um, aspects of, for instance, chanting and um, remembering the qualities of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha that do tend to purification. Because if we don't do it mechanically, which happens also, if we do it with Full attention. We can't have any negativities in the mind at that time. That's what a mantra does, unless it's done mechanically. If it's done mechanically, we can do both. We can have the mantra in mind and still be angry. But if we have actually that in mind, what we're chanting, and have that in mind, what is actually happening, then it is a way of removing the obscurations from the mind for the time being. That's useful. But the belief in rites and rituals is lost. This was an important point in the Buddhist India and still is in the Indian social environment because rites and rituals are considered to be very important and were considered to be very important. And that whole aspect of it, the Buddha denied. He said, it's all right to do it, but don't ever believe it's going to get you out of Dukkha. So these are the first three fetters. Now you can see that even with taking such a momentous step, the real problem of greed and hate has not been touched upon. And so a stream enterer whose mind is much refined from the ordinary mind, and that's why he's called a noble one, the first one of the four noble ones, feels the greed and hate much stronger. 
finds it much more troublesome when it arises. What may not have bothered that person earlier may have been just a slight mishap, now becomes a disturbance. And that is therefore a real spur for the practice. It's not a superficial knowing one should be nice. It's not that at all. It's an inner cleanness which is wanted at all times. In order to go from the first past moment to the second, the mind obviously has to be right. And as I said, it is possible to do it in quick succession, but very unusual. Most people need time. And especially if they live in the world, because the world is against such things, with its whole feeling and with its whole situation, the world does not support that kind of practice. So one has to be very strong within oneself. In order to go the next step, one should bring up the feeling of the fruit moment as often as possible. The two things one can bring up right view of oneself over and over again and the fruit moment the feeling of the fruit moment it may it will not be as impactful as it was at the actual time but it certainly brings back the relief and relief and the joy so both of them are necessary to bring up the right view, which is what took one there, and the fruit moment, which is the result. Doing that as often as possible is also very helpful if a stream entra reviews the hindrances which are still strong and the hindrances which have abated. Now, only two of the hindrances are really hate and greed. It's the desire for sensual gratification and ill will, which are the two that are hate and greed. The third one, which is sloth and torpor, and the fourth one, restlessness and worry, one can investigate. The fifth one should be gone, skeptical doubt. So one needs to investigate. Is there any change in any of them? Are they less? Which ones are strong? This is a kind of thing that's called reviewing knowledge. And actually one can do that also without path and fruit. One can check oneself out and see which one of these hindrances have I got worse? It's the only way we're ever going to be honest to ourselves about ourselves. And we need to do that with the understanding that everybody has them. And the only way we're going to minimize them 
is through practicing, substitution. So this kind of reviewing knowledge should not be confined to the person that has had stream entry, but it should be done by everyone. And then we're far less inclined to blame someone else. It's our own lack of purity. So the stream enterer still has a fair bit of all these um, hindrances. The last one's gone. And he should also investigate. How do they manifest? Now, a stream entry can do that, of course, much easier than a person who hasn't had stream entry. The reason for that being that a stream entry will know without a shadow of a doubt that he's just looking at a phenomenon and not at someone one is supposed to blame for having these hindrances. It's just a phenomenon. So the one who hasn't had stream entry has a harder time of it because doesn't really want to know about oneself. But the stream entry is perfectly happy to know about mind and body phenomena. It's not about oneself. So honesty to oneself about oneself is no problem. So that's one thing to do with your knowledge. The other thing that is said is that a stream enterer can no longer break any of the five precepts. So one should check that out too and see whether one is actually living with the five precepts and living with them to the point where they are not a real burden but they are sort of a natural phenomena that one um, manifests and hopefully be able to do the jhanas, at least some of them, the instructions would be that after the jhanas, after the mind is clean and clear again, to bring up the fruit moment and then review that whole understanding one has about the fallacy of the selfhood. Review the whole thing. See it clearly. See it clearly again. The willingness, the aptitude to no longer cherish the self. Not blaming it, not doing anything with it, to recognize it is something that we have conjured up. And see all the reasons that one has had to understand that. Bring it all up again. And then, recognize in the mind whether the mind is willing and able to let go of any clinging to anything at all that may constitute this life, this being, willing to completely dissolve this person. Not with the thought in mind, well, I can come right back, but because then we don't do it dissolve this person 
And again, let the mind go to the still point. It's very possible that one may try this several times, or many times, and the mind doesn't go to the still point. If it doesn't, one needs to investigate. What am I clinging to? What don't I want to let go? In the last analysis, it may be anything at all that we come up with. In the last analysis, we don't want to let go of this person. In the first instance, the momentum of practice may have taken us across the river. But in order to repeat that, and the repetition is, a stronger one than the first one, one actually has to completely let go of anything that has to do with this person. Whatever it may be that we think we're hanging on to. Other people, our desires. If we let go of this person completely, we can do it. But if there is this underlying clinging to a thing, some person or persons, or to a certain aspect of human life, sensual desire, sexual desire, whatever it may be, then, of course, we can't do it. So, we should see that. And if we are determined that we should take the next step, we'll have to work on that clinging. What is it? that I'm so attached to, that I can't let go. And as we investigate that, we may also be able to see that if it's attachment to people, it makes us dependent and fearful because people can disappear for all sorts of reasons. So it makes us fearful fearful that this may happen. And our attachment creates nothing but dukkha. If we are attached to our desires, we must be able to see they are only momentary fulfillment. And their lack of fulfillment the minute that has abated. If we can't see that, we haven't paid enough attention. Any sensual desire that we get gratified only is fulfilled for a moment. Two, three, four, five mind moments. And after that, there's the same emptiness that there was before. And the desire has to be gratified again. And again. And again. So, these are ways and means of getting at one's clinging, if one wants to. (coughs) Naturally, there are people who don't want to. That's fine. But if one is solidly on the path, this is what happens. Having taken, or been able to take, The second step, hate and greed are, so to say, halved. They are not 
illuminated. It's a long haul. A person who takes that step is called a once-returner. That person has to come back to this world once more to finish up. Only once more, which isn't too bad. And obviously, since these steps are irreversible, a stream-enterer and a once-returner return to this world with that experience intact. They return as once-returners or stream-enterers. And if they don't feel that they can make the effort of finishing in this life, they might console themselves with the knowledge and idea that next time they come back they might be very helpful to others, which is quite true. They can be very helpful to others because they will come equipped with the necessary truth understanding and can therefore teach it to others. That's a consolation. But if one wants to get out of Dukkha, of course it's none. But uh, after all, to return once is better than having to return seven times. So this also has this effect and result of minimizing greed and hate. Hate becomes irritation and greed becomes preference. So that the person's mind is not shaken by real hate and greed. Doesn't feel shaken at all. Because to be irritated doesn't shake the mind to the extent that when one really dislikes. And being irritated also has a shorter lifespan and greed is only preference but again the reviewing knowledge will show that both of them still create dukkha and that one should do that again the reviewing knowledge one should one can also expect to have a similar even not identical but very similar past moment which one can't describe anyway and a similar fruit moment, but not identical. The jitteriness is usually not there anymore. The relief is there, utter relief. The tears usually are not there. But it can be very blissful, which need not happen immediately. Again, the mind has touched upon the moment of nothingness and has therefore had the personal experience that there is actually nothing. Just like we already inferred in the seventh jhana that there really isn't anything, but that was an inference and not the utmost experience. Particularly, we have to understand it doesn't mean that bodies and trees and houses 
and cars and roads and bushes and mountains do not exist. They do. On the relative level, they are bushes and mountains and trees and roads and cars and people. But on an absolute level, they are particles of energy that come together and fall apart. And they come together in certain forms and therefore create a phenomenon. So that moment of nothing is a moment where the experience goes to that one moment when everything has fallen apart. One doesn't know that. One doesn't know that that moment everything has fallen apart. But preceding the understanding that there's nobody here, we have to go through a number of steps for insight. And the first one is that mind and body are two, depend upon each other, but not the same. Second one, arising and ceasing. Everything that arises has to cease. And the third one, the dissolution. Everything falls apart. And when we see that everything falls apart, without having had the uh, past moment, it can create a great deal of fear. And if that fear does happen, it's very important to talk to a teacher and get new courage. That this is quite all right. Fear is a step on the inside path. Within those inside moments also lies the understanding of cause and effect. That, like it is mentioned in the sutta that we have studied, that we have this gross material body made up of the four elements and nourished by material food. These are the causes and the body is the effect. So we must also take note of that. So having come in our inside path through the fear and having been able to go past it, the urgency of practice and the desire for liberation arises and eventually one does see the reality of things the way they are. So as the past moment comes, we're seeing or experiencing, I should say, the utter reality and that utter reality will never be questioned by anyone who has experienced it. It is so impactful and so strong that one can never forget it. Particularly the fruit moment. The past moment itself is nothing. So it's the fruit moment one never forgets. Having had other fruit moments, the first ones usually fade in one's memory and the later ones and the latest one remains the strongest, which is as it should be because the latest one is the one that brings the greatest um, happiness and relief 
to the person. So we have not eliminated hate and greed, but we've halved it, which is nice. But also what one learns about the world at that moment is the fact that very few people have past moments. Why are we so surprised when they're all working with hate and greed? That the whole world is concerned with nothing else. It needed two past moments and a lot of work, hard work, a lot of meditation, until one could get even to that point where those two were lessened. So again, the one who is the one's returner reviews the remaining hindrances and makes very sure that he or she finds that hate and greed are really much less, not suppressing anything, but just noticing. And also reviews the first fetters that were gone, the first three. Now, the lower five, these are the lower five fetters. And there are ten altogether. So, actually, the next two steps are very difficult because we have to get to a point of so completely giving up ourselves that hate and greed will be totally eliminated. And that's called a non-returner. Having done that, that non-returner is still beset by the five higher hindrances which are only eliminated by the Arahant. So you can see that our pathway there is not, it's not easy, but it's the last step which is really the hardest. We need two steps to get rid of hate and greed. And we need two steps which are so meaningful that the person who has done those become a once-returner or and then a non-returner is changed from the ground up. Now, the once-returner still doesn't feel the removal of the me unless he puts his mind on it and checks it out. When one puts the mind on and checks it out, then one knows there's nobody there. But at other times, when one isn't concerned with that particular aspect, one still feels that there's somebody talking, responding, and so on, because half of hate and greed is still there. To get to the next step, the non-returner. Called a non-returner because such a person does not return to the human realm. Such a person, if they die before they become Arahant, has to be reborn in one of the Brahma realms, one of the God realms. 
which sounds nice, doesn't it? But that's exactly a setup. So, what happens for the non-returner? He hasn't become arahant because the fetter of the desire for rebirth in the fine material world or the formless world remains. These are two desires. Now, obviously, such a person has been doing the jhanas because otherwise there's no distinction to be known between fine material and formless. So, having heard and known that there are such realms and experienced them, the uh, non-returner has that as a latent desire to be reborn in such a realm. And because he still has what is called ignorance and conceit, that's how these desires arise. Now, the word ignorance denotes nothing other than that there's still the very faintest remnant of a me. It's very faint, but it's there. And the word conceit doesn't mean that's a conceited person. It means there is a conceiving of a self. It's still there. And because of these two, called ignorance and conceit, but only con- meaning about the self, there's still restlessness. Of course, it's greatly reduced. No comparison to the restlessness of the people in the world who are going from one place to another to find happiness. But the restlessness is still there because that very faint me experience within is still causing a niggling feeling of not being totally removed from everything. And the reason the non-returner can feel that, which a person who hasn't done any steps really doesn't, because it's very subtle, is because having come to that place in the practice, the recognition of what's happening within is much more subtle. The gross things have been eliminated. The gross hindrances are gone. Even though restlessness is the same word as the one that we use for the five hindrances, it's a far more subtle experience. And it is immediately recognized. And with that immediate recognition, it's also dropped. But it's there because there's something still to be done. It hasn't been finished. So the gross hindrances are gone. Greed and hate are gone. The lower fetters have been removed, the first five. And those other five are there. Again, in order to become or a non-returner, to have that experience, it's the same guidelines as for the uh, once-returner, one brings up right view, one brings up the latest fruit moment after the jhanas. One resurrects all one's understanding of the fallacy of the selfhood. And it has to be extreme, that understanding. 
because this is a very extreme step to become a non-returner, even though he still has the five higher fetters, more subtle fetters. That's why they're called higher, more subtle. That understanding has to be totally reviewed, and not only reviewed from an intellectual standpoint, but felt. And as it is felt, then there has to be that complete commitment and total dedication to get rid of anything that clings to the worldly life, particularly mind and body, that has any connotation of a me. This has to be very strong determination and then the same thing for the mind to go to the point where there is nothing happening. At that point, the uh, past moment may be different because the mind has already become used to the past moment, had already had two. And the past moment being so short, the fruit moment may just be a recognition. No tears, probably no great excitement, most likely no excitement, but recognition, complete recognition. And with that kind of relief, well, that's done now. Now, what next? So the um, fruit moment doesn't have the impact that it had the first time, nor the impact that it has the second time. It's mostly a feeling of having finally had the work that what had been engaged in done. But obviously the mind knows very well that there's something else to be done. And that something else boils down to the same efforts again. Now the non-returner has to review the, um, the fetters remaining and check out whether there's any wish for a rebirth in the higher realms. That can manifest as the non-returner having a wish for having everything nice, everything pleasant, not being confronted with anything that has dukkha in it. Now that's also a very um, a human attitude, but here for the non-returner it becomes not just an attitude, but it becomes the inner kind of drive because the fine material and the formless realms are supposed to have only sukha, only happiness. So it's an inner drive, it can be strong, that inner drive. That has to be recognized. And then that subtle remainder of self that has to be recognized. Restlessness is easy to recognize. And the Buddha gave the advice that it's uh, 
very detrimental to one's own benefits if one wants to be reborn in those higher realms, particularly because one lasts there an enormously long time, eons. And that's why gods think they are eternal. And because one lasts for eons and doesn't really have any dukkha, it's very difficult to take the next step. We've got it easy here. We've got plenty of dukkha. And with that dukkha, we can actually take a step. But there it's very difficult. So he said that it was not desirable to get into those realms as of a non-returner, never has to come back to the human realm, but stays in those Brahma realms for such a long time that one cannot actually nominate how long that is. It's beyond our reckoning. So there he spoke against finishing there, that one should go the whole way. Having investigated the remaining fetters, the non-returner will be encouraged to do the next step. Not only because it sort of is the last thing that needs to be done, but particularly because the non-returner can feel that that little bit of very subtle restlessness is still dukkha. That little bit of remaining desire is still dukkha. Even it is desire for the highest realms there are. And that little bit of selfhood, that very subtle bit of selfhood is still dukkha. And it's so subtle that one has to be a non-returner in order to recognize it. And so, taking the next step amounts to the same guidelines. Maybe there is that slight difference that the mind resolves that this person of mind and body is willing to disappear totally and utterly willing to disappear. No, nothing that can hold them. Nothing that needs to be done. Nothing that's important. The person is willing to disappear. And as the person is willing to disappear, there is that in the fruit moment, the past moment again being something one cannot actually explain because it is a non-occurrence. This is what the technical term is. It's a non-occurrence. In the fruit moment, there is that feeling of having disappeared. And having disappeared creates enormous bliss. One may think, and the Buddha also talked about that, that a worldling who hasn't experienced that may think this is dreadful. 
to disappear. But actually, it's marvelous because with that disappearance, which may feel like falling into falling in that's not true it's very hard to describe falling I was going to say falling into the depths of a hole but that's not quite it maybe falling into the depths of a cloud and disappearing in there but even that's not quite it but I suggest anyway that's happening right now so um, with that Nothing that happens in the world can ever have really close impact. It's all happening, but it is comparable. But if we play with a child, and we like to really be nice with this uh, child, be together with that child, and the child likes to play with blocks, so we, of course, we pretend an interest in blocks and we uh, help the child to build a little uh, tower or a little castle out of blocks. But do we take it seriously? The child might scream if somebody steps on it accidentally. Well, we wouldn't scream. We don't take that ex- uh, seriously. And that's the same what happens then. Obviously, one helps people building their castles and uh, if one has an opportunity and uh, maybe tries to help them to see that these castles are not exactly uh, worthwhile building but it's not serious it's just happening and that analogy I think does make it quite clear what the result is now the person who has taken that step is able to get back to that utter bliss of disappearance any time that they wish. And it is said in the scriptures that the Buddha said, in the Nibbanic bliss for a week after his attainment of Nibbana and only then decided what he would do. It doesn't say that he sat in this for a week without moving. It, one doesn't know. But a person who has attained this uh, the uh, complete ob- obliteration of the selfhood has the ability to get back to that utter blissful feeling of not being there which is the culmination of the whole pathway which it says in the Sutta, for which young men from good families leave the home life for the homelessness and do the work and then realize at the end that all that needed to be done has been done. There's nothing further to come. I felt that it would be a nice um, culmination of the Sutta to explain those four steps the um, non-returner one should say has as a vehicle of course the jhanas but also 
as a vehicle, vehicle, the four Brahma Viharas, the four highest emotions. These are the vehicles that take him to the higher realms. So that doesn't mean one shouldn't practice those if one doesn't want to go there. It just means that without them one can't go there. So there is that cleanness of mind and that clarity of mind necessary. The 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 cleanness is the purification, but it's also remain uh, it means clarity. Seeing what there really is and that then gets one the whole way.